so that her hair looked very pretty. No one could accuse her of having roots, until her spill of tears her makeup had been perfect. She didn't understand. What was so wrong with her? Why were people snickering behind her back? As she rinsed her hands, she felt her sorrow morph into fury. That there had been no welcome that put out when she married Arthur was enough to deal with. She had assumed it was because this social set preferred the status quo— but what had seemed at first to be a few idle comments about how wonderful Arthur's first wife was had cascaded into a tidal wave of glowing superlatives. Everyone, from the ladies who lunched down to the waiter at Pyard and even her own butler, Mr. Guffey, seemed to belong to the DeAndre Corn fan club. The stiletto shoes Melanie had to fill just kept getting bigger. How could she compete? Even Arthur had once said that there was no comparison between the two. Melanie finally pulled herself together enough to leave the bathroom with her head held high, but when she saw Joan and Wendy passing before her, she ducked behind a sweeping Brunswick and feel-patterned curtain. They fluttered by with gale-force velocity, blind to their cowering, shattering eavesdropper. It seemed so harsh that they could be so happy-go-lucky after savaging her evening. In the car home Arthur Korn put a comforting hand on his wife's knee. Are you okay, sweetie? You've been pretty quiet, which is not like you, my little chatterbox. I'm fine, she said. Somehow she just couldn't bring herself to confide in Arthur and tell him about the Melanie and Cuisinart remarks she had overheard. Boy, that party was like a cast and call for Night of the Living Dead. Boring zombies at every turn. I was dying for an ejector seat. That snob Philip Coddington talking my ear off with his family crest blazer doesn't let anyone else say a word. What was that crest anyway? It's like Bambi and a tree or something. I'm not sure, murmured Melanie. It's ridiculous, whatever it was. Looks like the stupid deer is taking a piss in the woods. What's so fancy about that? He's so proud of his moron ancestry. Melanie was barely listening. She stared out the drizzle-splattered window lost in her thoughts. She was motionless except for her right thumb furiously moving over her index finger, chipping away the secretary red nail polish. And as the corn's Bentley glided up Park Avenue, piece after piece of fire-engine-colored lacquer fell to the floor. Chapter Two Shiitake happens. The phrase was emblazoned on the apron that Madge, the Vance's housekeeper, wore as she made the final preparations for dinner on a breezy Wednesday night in early September. Drew and John, the Vance boys, had given the apron to her last Christmas after being immediately attracted to the lopsided drawing of an almost psychedelic-looking mushroom. Madge sprinkled sprigs of parsley on the pummeled veal, scooped some Uncle Ben's onto each plate, and added the buttered haricot vert before bringing the tray of food into the dining room. So there we are, in this house, in middle of nowhere Vermont, baked out of our minds, continued Drew, ripping off a piece of his dinner roll. He nodded thanks to Madge as she placed his meal before him. His father, Morgan, frowned. You know that marijuana is not only illegal but also very bad for you. Kills the brain cells, he said sternly. Yeah, 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 but hey, it's nothing our last president didn't do. Anyway, don't be judgmental. It's a really great story, said Drew. So then what? asked John, his younger brother. 
So we're like so out of it. The heater is blasting and no one can figure out how to turn it down. So Cynthia and Whitney just take off their shirts. They're just sitting there in their bras. Who are these young ladies? interrupted their mother, Cordelia. You know them, Cynthia Whitaker and Whitney Coddington, said Drew. I can't believe they'd be so promiscuous, said Cordelia disdainfully. Madge put a plate in front of Cordelia, who stared at it with surprise, as if astonished that she would be expected to actually consume something. Oh, you'd be amazed, Mom. Anyway, can I finish? asked Drew. Yes, get to the end, for Christ's sakes, said John, shoving rice and string beans into his mouth. We don't have all night. So, finally, there's a knock on the door, and we're like, who the hell is that? And it's a cop, a female one. And she comes in and looks around. She sees all the bongs and empty beer cans and shit like that. Drew, such language. Sorry. And she's like, Mr. Lewis asked me to check on you. He was worried about you guys being out here alone. What I see here is a disaster. It's all illegal. You guys are in big trouble, blah, blah, blah. Why didn't you tell us about this? You'll need an attorney, said Morgan with concern. I should call Cy Hammerman right now. Wait, hold your horses before you spaz. So then some of the girls start crying. They're totally freaking out. We're so screwed. And Carl is like shitting because he's on probation for that open can of beer in Martha's Vineyard. And suddenly... The cop flips on the stereo and starts taking off her clothes. Heavens, said Cordelia, raising a hand to her chest. She was a goddamn stripper, Drew said, laughing. Awesome, who hired her? asked John. Well, that's the best part. Carl hired her. He wanted to scare the girls into thinking we'd be busted, but he was too stoned to even remember, so he was freaking out more than anyone at first. John and Drew burst out laughing. Morgan studied his boys with contempt mixed with envy. In his day, he would never have used profanity in front of his parents. There was such a lack of respect among the younger generation today. On the other hand, Morgan saw very little of his parents when he was growing up, having been shipped off to boarding school in England at the tender age of six. So he was proud and grateful to have an open relationship with his sons. He didn't want to be the severe disciplinarian that his father had been. He remembered that terrified feeling at the dinner table, when it was politics instead of antics. Morgan couldn't even remember his father very well. Just that he read the newspaper a lot and was always away on business, amassing the multi-millions that now earned enough interest for them to live fairly comfortably. He was unable to recollect even one happy family dinner. Not one. He and his sisters were usually relegated to the children's dining room, while their parents ate in a very faraway parlor in their wing of the house. He had much warmer memories of his nanny, Ruth. She had been the one he missed the most when he was away at school. In retrospect, his parents' complete diffidence toward him seemed like a form of stealth cruelty. Mr. Vance, there's an urgent phone call for you, said Madge, standing at the threshold. Morgan rose quickly. Thank you, I'll take it in my study, if you'll excuse me, Cord. Cordelia looked up from her untouched plate. Of course, dear. Morgan walked over to her and pecked her on the cheek. Thank you for dinner. It was wonderful. He left the room. Mom, we're outy too, said John. Where are you off to? We're going to head downtown to check out Chester's band at Luna Lounge. Is that Clark Winthrop's boy? 
Yes, Mom, and he's 23 now. He's no longer a boy, said John. You children are growing up so quickly. Gosh, it seems like just yesterday when I caught you boys running through the apartment throwing water balloons out the window, said Cordelia with a sigh. Yeah, Mom, that was yesterday, said Drew. You scared the daylights out of poor Mrs. Cockpurse, admonished Cordelia. That was hilarious. It cost your father a tidy sum to dry clean her mink jacket. She had to send it to Maximilian's, she recalled. That's cause John put Gatorade in his water balloon. She shouldn't have been wearing a friggin' fur in September. When will you boys grow up? asked Cordelia, secretly hoping that the answer was never. I don't know, Mom, said John, rising, but thanks for dinner. When do you head back to Trinity, John? Tuesday. Well, we'll have to have another family dinner before you go, said Cordelia. Sure. Come on, retard. Drew got up and pecked his mother's cheek. Bye, Mom. Thanks. The boys left the room, and Cordelia stared at their vacant seats. The grand mahogany dining table could comfortably fit twelve, so it looked very empty with just one seated at the head. Cordelia glanced distractedly around the room. The walls had been painted the color of red licorice and featured old Dutch master paintings that had been in Morgan's family for generations. The sideboard was English, George II, as was most of the van's furniture, which had been both inherited from Cordelia's family and bought at auction, with the occasional purchases from dealers in shows in Maastricht and New York. Silk taffeta curtains reminiscent of turn-of-the-century ball gowns adorned the windows, and an oriental carpet lined the floor. Mario Boisa had decorated the apartment in the late 80s, and Jerome de Stingal, Cord's best friend in the world, had given it a little...